What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 18 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining us shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, we will recap my trip to Europe and talk about the London Drum Show and all the amazing drummers I got to hang out with there. We'll also talk a little bit more about PASIC 2015, and Mike will give us his impressions of some of the artists there, and we'll get into a little bit of news about Brady Drums. In our shop talk section, we're going to discuss hi-hat size, from 12-inch hi-hats all the way up to 17s, how do they affect the sound, and how can you best use them for the musical environment that you're playing in. We'll discuss cover artist Neil Peart and the effect that he's had on millions of drummers, and in our gear review section, we'll check out the Providence 4x14 VW snare drum, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week, so let's get started. Holy crap, it has been a while. Can we start a podcast with holy crap? Is that okay? <laughs> I think crap is, is, we'll get through the censors, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, all right. Well, I, yeah, actually, podcasts, go they go deep with the cussing, so <laughs> I think we're just fine with holy crap. Anyways, we're back. We're both back. I see you in your office, yep. and I am not in a hotel room. Yeah, how's it feel to be back in the control room? It, it's nice, man. It's nice to be back uh, home on my beautiful broadcaster and... <sighs> Got all my all my my lovely Canon C100s with their beautiful Sigma lenses everywhere. By the way, I'm not endorsed by either of those companies. I just like I like you know I'm a I'm a homebody, so I like having my stuff. I'm an only child, and I just yeah. uh, I'm a creature of habit. So yeah, so it's great to be back. How was it uh, playing on those uh, not your kit for two weeks? Man, uh, I mean that's part of being a clinician. You just kind of know going in and. Uh, after going to China, it's just nice to play on high-end Gretsch kits because yeah. I think in my entire Chinese tour, I only played on a Gretsch kit once. Um, so you know, every everywhere I went, they would say, "Okay, you know, all we have for you is a a pearl, whatever." And it's like, fine, you know, what, whatever you have. You know, the way it works with your endorsements is you have to give your endorsements a heads up of where you're going, and they have the first option to get you a drum set, and then if they can't. And you, there's nothing you can do about it. Then you can play whatever, so you don't get in any trouble as long as you let Gretsch know, hey, I will be in Shenzhen on this date. If you can get a kit there, fantastic. And then they'll let you know, like, hey, we have no dealers in the area, we have no rental companies in the area. Just play whatever you can play, and then that way you don't get in trouble when the pictures hit the internet and stuff. So after that, you know, this European tour was great. I had, uh, let's see, in Spain, I played a Gretsch Brooklyn in my exact sizes, so that was heavenly then they took that actually no i don't think it was the same kit but it was a replica of that kit i had the exact same kit same color and everything in portugal so that was super comfortable and i always travel with my own symbols Uh. so that's really comfortable for me uh and then i went from there to scotland scotland uh usually would have that's a an amazing store um that I've done stuff with before. They're called Drum Central. And Graham there does everything at a very high level. And he was like, you won't believe it, but we cannot get a hold of a Gretsch kit because of the London Drum Show. So all of the European kind of rental companies have all their Gretsch kits at the London Drum Show. So we've got a, like a, I think it was a Catalina Club or something. I don't remember what it was. and But it was in my sizes and it was the house kit of the, the club that they had me playing in. Oh, cool. It just happened to be a Gretsch Catalina Club. It was in 2012, 14. Um, actually, sorry, 2010, 14. So that was totally fine. And then they scrapped together some snares for me. And then when I got to the London Drum Show, um, the only kit they could find in my sizes was a Stanton Moore's kit that he has in Europe at a rental company just there. So I got to play Stanton's USA Custom in my normal sizes. So as long as the sizes are the same, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. You know, I, I never kind of complain like, what is this maple mahogany ply? I don't care about any of that crap. You know, I just... As long as it's close, it, yeah. it's cool. And, I mean, that's part of being a clinician. Sit down, play the kit, and move on. You Do know? you spend much time tuning? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely from where they think that I like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they're, they're always like, you don't even have to worry. We already got it tuned up. And I'm like, I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to double check real quick. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, it, but no, I'm, I'm a pretty fast tuner. And my tuning isn't that out of control. Um, I think the one thing that happened on this tour was a lot of people started asking about the two snares and why I play two snares that are tuned the same. Um, and so, you know, because people were like, I don't really hear the difference in your snare. And they were like mad at me that my side snare didn't sound <laughs> any different than my main snare. And I was like, well, first of all, calm down. <laughs> OK, second of all, I don't play a side snare for a different pitch. I actually play it 
because there's a lot of grooves and a lot of improvisational stuff that I do that's much easier for me to play in an open grip. So I oh, move to okay. the side snare for that and the independence and the just not having my arms crossed makes it much easier for me. And then kind of maybe from my Matt Chamberlain influences, I I have the side snare muted more than the main snare. And so when I start playing patterns between with, you know, my left hand on the side snare, and my right hand on the main snare, there becomes this texture where they're very similar, but not identical. And so it just adds more texture to the drumming itself. So cool. um, I'm, I'm actually definitely not going for the, big buffy side snare or the tight piccolo side snare it's it is supposed to be very close to my main snare yeah so. we had a uh, this is pretty funny we had a reader send in his favorite muffling technique uh, okay and it, i don't think we're going to be able to print it but he takes a pair of of boxer briefs <laughs> and you and <laughs> shut up <laughs> shut up and puts the elastic over the hoop like a third of the way i swear <laughs> So if you ever in, That's so if awesome. you're ever in a, in a pinch, you know. <laughs> if you're ever in a pinch, get rid of your underwear, man. Just go commando and slap it on there. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Attaboy. <laughs> man, you got to get me that guy's email. I'll send him a free pair of sticks. It's pretty awesome. I mean, I kind of want to try it. <laughs> yeah, of course, man. I mean, with a new pair, you know, go to Target, get some cheap, you know, Hanes boxer briefs. <laughs> Don't be throwing some used ones on there. Oh man! So yeah, so it's good to be back home. How about you, man? Have you have you assimilated all the Pasic 2015 memories and knowledge? Yeah, you know, it's almost like so far distant now. I almost forget it. It was it was like a whirlwind, and then we got back. But I did get a chance to look at a bunch of the videos that we had produced, which hopefully will get published in the next week or so. So we interviewed everybody. Well, everybody that that agreed to it, we interviewed them, and we have like five minutes of them performing. All the interviews are great. Um, because I didn't get to see a lot of clinics, it was great to check out the videos and see. And and uh, the one that I'd overlooked that was really fantastic was Larnell. Oh, yeah, Man, yeah, yeah. he plays so – I mean, it, it's hard to even describe. It, it reminded me almost like, like African drumming, just so natural and, and so fluid and and so, like, just expressive. I mean, you could tell that he speaks through his instrument and he – and he played this really cool stuff. He had a, a, a electronic multi pad, and he was playing some like uh, melodic ideas with like a with a thumb piano and stuff. And wow, really, really cool textures with a splash on the snare that sounded way more authentic than than when I've heard anyone else do it. And he does like a cool thing with his hi hat where he rubs the stick on it, so it sounds like a reversed hi hat. Really, so it has this like swelling effect. He's just so fluid and so positive. You can just feel it. Man, he's one of the nicest guys in the world, too. I mean, he's been unbelievably supportive of everything I've ever done. And we've we he came out to one of my clinics a long time ago, and somebody at the time, he didn't have as big of a name as he does now. This is maybe three or four years ago. I think it was in Canada, actually. He came out, and everybody that was in the room was like, hey, uh, Larnell is here. And I was like, I, I don't even know who that is at the time, you know? And they said, oh, he subs sometimes for Snarky Puppy. And, I, and, and actually, even at that time, I barely knew who Sput was. I just knew who the band was. And he was so unbelievably kind. And since that day, we've been in contact. Uh, and he's just unbelievably supportive, you know, and it's really cool. And I think you and I have talked about it on the podcast before, but there's something to be said for how much love Sput has for Larnell and vice versa. Like, they are the two drummers in the same gig. It's a paid gig. It's a very cool gig. It's one of the most coveted gigs in the entire drum scene that we have. And yet they're very supportive of each other. So it's like, God, what, what you couldn't ask for two better human beings to be, you know, fighting for this spot in your band. Yeah, there's no, no vibes whatsoever. Spot was there too. He played with Ghost Note. They did the evening concert. Right. With Nate. Yeah. They were both hanging out and, and Larnell's, his solo was, was like, there was no chops and licks. It was all music and it was all oh, like just real kind of. I can't of wait to see it. Conversational. It was, it was great. So he's very cool. I mean, Mark gets my uh, gets my kudos for the best clinic. Larnell gets my kudos for the best performance, like musicality. Oh, that's that's awesome. Now, do you know does 
PASIC film this stuff as well, or were the only cameras up there your guys's? Well, they were doing a live stream, supposedly, right. which I hadn't heard any reports on how well it did or anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. So in the past, they, they've recorded everything and just archived it and never really released it. So I don't know. I don't know what the what the status is with that. I guess hopefully they're going to start releasing this stuff. A, I love PASIC. I love PAS. It's awesome. It's awesome. Oh goodness gracious! Yeah, yeah. Why just just show show the video? Or you know what? You want to make some money? Let me buy the video. <laughs> right. But let me see it somewhere. Put out a DVD. I'll rub it on my TV screen since I don't have a DVD player. Give me something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm uh, not sure what's happening, uh, but I know they. They obviously. Do you think I'll be asked back to perform at PAS after that rant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just sealed my fate. Uh, yeah, I think so. You got a good shot. <laughs> uh, anyways, awesome man, very cool, very cool. Well, I got to, dude, at the London Drum Show, I finally got to see Peter Erskine perform. I've never seen him play. I've never met him. Oh yeah, what was his <laughs> vibe? Because his kit was pretty enormous, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Like. Uh, so yeah, I was backstage and, and Peter, uh, let's see on the first day, uh, on the first day that was, um, when Thomas Pridgen, um, and Annika performed, by the way, I just want to give it up to Thomas Pridgen for, you know, um, just having such an insanely positive and different attitude than I've ever seen before. Um, I, you know, we definitely approach things a little bit differently. I wouldn't say we dislike each other in any way, but we just approach things very differently. And when I saw him in the hotel room checking in, I was like, I was like, uh, let's see what happens. And he couldn't have been nicer. Give me a huge hug and was super nice and polite. And cause I've heard him say, you know, in podcasts kind of not dog me out, but just say, I'm not trying to be some Mike Johnston thing, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's always had kind of a negative connotation to it. Just give me a big hug. Couldn't have been nicer. Asked me about, you know, my performance. Like, when when was I playing? You want to make sure he was there. Super nice. So I was like, wow, that was cool. Right. Then he went and did his clinic, and he was on stage extra early to let people come in and talk to him while he just sat at the front of the stage, which was cool. And then in the clinic, he, like, said some really nice things about me. And, uh, yeah. it was, and I wasn't in the room. I was actually teaching on the uh, educational stage. So later people said, hey, Thomas mentioned you in his clinic. And I was like, I'm sure he did. <laughs> and, you know, just waiting for the bomb to drop. And they're like, yeah, man, he said that, you know, you're a genius. And I was like, uh, are, you, are you sure? You know, and then I saw him afterwards. And once again, he couldn't have been cooler. He was giving everybody as much time as possible. So it was really nice to see that because he's one of – you know, the true talents that we have. And, uh, so that was awesome with Thomas. Annika just, you know, killed it. You know, she just did her thing. And, uh, so how do you say her last name? Nillis. Nillis. I, I finally asked. Okay. Yeah. Good, good, good. And she said that everyone in America says Niles yeah. and she told, and she doesn't correct them. She doesn't care. Yeah. But if you ask her to say her name, it's Annika Nillis. Oh, okay. That's like the, uh, yeah. the girl that I play with, her name is Laura. But she's from Argentina, so it's Laura. Laura. <laughs> but everybody calls her Laura, and she just lets it go. Yeah. She's like, it's more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> right. Yeah, same with Annika. So, yeah, uh, I just said, you know, we were hanging out, and I was like, okay, I know this is awkward because we've known each other for a while, but I, I honestly do not know how to say your last name. And she was like, Nilis. And, you know, and uh, I was like, okay, so it's not Niles. And she's like, no, but everybody says that, and I don't mind. It doesn't bother me at all. But if you ask me how to say my last name, it's Nillis. Nillis. All right. Yeah. There we go. Boom. Problem solved. <laughs> for the day. Uh, so all you guys out there that are getting ready to hit on her in her next clinic appearance in the U.S., now at least you know how to say her last name right before she rejects you. Uh, so, so yeah, so Annika killed it. And then uh, after that was uh, Peter Erskine. So Peter Erskine and I were on the same day, and we got to meet, and he was, man, I, I was pretty intimidated because... I've just never met him. He's from, you know, that other era of drummers that, you know, I don't imagine that Peter spends a lot of time on YouTube researching my drum lesson videos. So yeah. I know since I don't have any gigs to speak of, I know he doesn't know who I am. And so I was kind of intimidated and he was just couldn't have been nicer. Uh, had read, you know, I don't know if he read the Modern Drummer article or what, but he knew who I was and what I did. And yeah. he, he was so respectful, so nice. And um yeah, and then he came out, and I, what I loved about it was, you know, between Thomas Pridgen and Annika and myself, and um, uh, who's the guy that plays for Lenny Kravitz? Uh, oh, Franklin. 
Franklin Vanderbilt, uh, Peisty artist, Ludwig guy. Between all of us, you know, there's so many, so much drumming to this festival, and then Peter comes out and with just absolute confidence and I mean, no shakiness in his voice whatsoever, just hammers home like a ten minute speech on quarter notes. Oh wow! And and I was like, at a boy, Pete, <laughs> and, and you know, he's got his six piece kit up there, like you mentioned, with a cowbell and. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what is he going to do? And, um, and it's the new Thomas Starr series. And he just talked about quarter notes. And then he played a track that was all quarter notes. And he, you could just tell he was like, do you know what I've done? Like, <laughs> I couldn't care less about these chops and all this stuff. You know, like, oh, yeah. let me show you what really matters. And, uh, you know, and so, yeah, it was fantastic, man. And then um, he used that kit. Really, he just played a lot of big band stuff. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was it was weird. Like. Uh, the the bass drum was pretty it was a 22 by 18 and it was pretty wide open and it sounded fantastic um his toms actually were pretty rocked out like they had rock mm. tuning to them so um but he played a lot of big band stuff and he made it sound fantastic and it, it was great and he just like i said he couldn't have been more kind so i had a fantastic time just i sat in the front row for his entire clinic because I've, I've never had the opportunity to see him before have you uh, checked out his play along apps Absolutely, yeah. Great. I mean, those and you know he doesn't get enough credit that that came out a long time ago. Like, you know, I mean, he was at the forefront of that. He made jam it for drummers, like specifically for drummers, not just for musicians. Um, And yeah, I thought that was just a fantastic thing because you can, you know, it's really hard. Like, how do you practice jazz when? you don't have like a jazz club nearby that has open you know mic nights and you can't sit in with people and maybe you're not involved in school music how are you going to practice jazz so to be able to have like the jam it styled app where you can pull down the drums pull down the saxophone pull down the bass i mean that was just brilliant and that i if i'm not wrong i think that came out like a couple years ago you know yeah Um, yeah he was showing that i believe at basic two years ago yeah i remember and it was like and so i think he deserves a little more credit for like that Mm -hmm. was you know, a pretty cool thing. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely checked that stuff out. It was awesome. All righty. So, real quick, before we get into Shop Talk, you and I talked via text real quick about Brady Drums, and there's something going on over there. And I don't quite know what's going on. I definitely don't want to get into too many details, but is Brady now not making drums anymore? What's uh, I mean, the, deal? the official word, without going into too much speculation, is that they're just closing shop. So that they are, they're not, they, they've, they're not selling the brand. They're not going to be licensing at this for the time being. They're just not, they're just going to cease to exist. Um, wow. But that said, I, I heard that Chris Brady, the founder is still going to be making drums, just not on a production level. Okay. So I think essentially what's happening is he's looking to retire. Okay. Okay. Just not have to deal with, I mean, cause he's. He's such a legend, and his his drums are so revered. I mean, he could not make enough drums. There's no there's no way. I mean, his Nam booth is sold by by noon on Thursday of the Nam show. Really? So no, I mean, he could make a hundred drums and they would sell. He could make two hundred drums and they would sell. So I can only imagine the pressure of. I mean, in the wood that he's working with over there in Australia is like, I mean, it's like trying to cut concrete. It's so so right. dense. Right. So his body, I think his body's starting to give out a little bit because he's 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 no spring chicken. He's been making drums longer than I've been on the earth. So wow, wow, and well, I got to say, I mean, it, it, as sad as it is, it it should also be celebrated what they brought to the world because I, I think honestly they were the launching point for so many custom companies. Yeah, you know, totally. it was Pearl, Yamaha, Tama, DW. Gretsch, and then out of nowhere come the Spin Doctors and Brady Drums, yeah. you know, yeah. and the intro fill to Two Princes, um, you know, and, and for anyone that wants to make fun of the Spin Doctors, go for it. I don't care, but I'm telling you, when uh, when that intro came on, it was just like, and it was on your car, it was in your car, it was on the radio, it was a hit single, and it was the coolest sounding drum set you've ever heard, and then you run to MTV to see what's going on, and you see this gorgeous drum set that looks like you know nothing you've ever seen and then instantly it's like okay brady drums rule you know yeah yeah um and from that moment on it just launched everything you know i'm hell i'm looking at the page right now for um for providence drums and the first thing that comes to my mind is brady yeah you know yeah pretty much anyone Um, who's doing stave construction drums or solid shell construction can 
should owe a lot of respect back to Chris Brady because he was – I mean the original version of his stuff, he was just taking a log and hollowing it out like African drum style. And then he got into doing block style and stave construction. So there's so many companies now like with Hendrix and Sugar Percussion and and I mean they would all give res- mad respect to Chris. I mean, he's Absolutely. He's yeah. he's a legend, maybe even more so than Johnny Craviato, I think. Wow. He's up there at that That's awesome. Well, I got to give some shout out and some love to to Kelly Brady as well because you know, two NAMs ago, uh, myself, JP Bouvet and Matt Halpern wanted to play for the crowd we really wanted to play we were all in the same room and we wanted to do a common thread kind of solo thing we had just finished our second tour and matt plays for mapex jp plays for dw and i play for gretch so what booth do we get on three drum sets at it's unfair to do it at mapex dw or gretch and so all three of us without even discussing it we're like what about brady (laughs) it's it's crazy it's it's like our favorite drum company that none of us play for So we went over to Kelly, we brought up the idea, and she's like, okay, now when we do this, when when three drummers play for two or three minutes, we will get shut down. We won't get a warning. We will be shut down. So come here on Saturday at like 5 p.m., and we'll agree to, we we will allow ourselves to be shut down just so you guys can do your performance. And it's like, dude, who would would agree to that? You're all the way at NAMM. It's the biggest show of the year. And you're allowing your booth to get completely shut down just so that we can have a performance. And oh, it was yeah. so awesome. And we and I mean, as soon as we were done, Matt, JP, and I were like in a different room. We we're like, dude, those drums were unreal because <laughs> none of us had ever sat down and played a full Brady kit. You know, we've tested snares, but we've never performed on one. Yeah. So lots of love to Brady snare or to Brady drums in general. And uh, if you own one, you are a lucky, lucky human being for sure. All right, let's move into some shop talk. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about hi hat size. I've been playing 15-inch hi-hats for about six or seven months now. I play the Minel Byzance 15-inch dual hats. Um, I would say in the past I've gone all the way down to 12s. When I was a Peisty artist, I used to have a set of 12s that uh, Stuart Copeland used in some session, and I was able to get them away from Peisty. Um, I've played 13s. 14s were always my standard. And I just wanted to kind of talk to you. What is your standard size? I mean, I know you probably own quite a bit, but if you're just going to a gig a Mike Dawson gig. What is your standard hi-hat size? Oh man, that there is no Mike Dawson gig. It's all <laughs> it's all dependent. I mean, if you said grab the the hi-hats that speak the most like naturally for me, it's actually 16s. Uh wow, I really? A, yeah, I have a set of 16 uh Soul Tone old vintage old schools. They're like really kind of heavily patinaed. Okay. And they're they're thin and kind of dry so they're not super washy. Do you not see the rundown I sent you? It says 13 through 15. Why are you going off the board? We well, have to put a limit hey somewhere. Man. And you know what? I actually recently did a session with 17s that were uh, a Constantinople crash. Okay, so they were crashes. Yeah, Constantinople crash over a Zildjian A medium-thin crash. Wow. And I was going for like a Ronnie Venucci vibe. Okay. So he, he uses 17s. And Steve Jordan has used 17s. Steve Jordan uses, yeah. Still and he does. uses 16s a lot, too. So you have a pair of Soultone 16s. I do, and I I would I could probably use them on every gig. Um, wow, their 16 is not doesn't feel too big, and I think part of it is I mean I like darker sounding hi hats, but when you get into the smaller darker stuff, they kind of like they don't have enough sound. They kind of they're too yeah. too weak. So if I'm playing like a louder show, I need a little bit more sound. I also don't like really chunky crispy hi hats, which 13s and most 14s sometimes and have that vibe uh and also having longer legs i tend to put my hi-hat stand further away gotcha so if i put up a set of 13s i usually whiff them i usually just miss them entirely (laughs) so the 16s bring them in just enough to where it feels normal yeah so that would be my ideal but you know uh i still love the 12 inch special recording hats that dennis chambers used back in the 90s like that's still a great sound totally Uh, totally and 14-inch New Beats. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the New Beats are just, you know, those are the, the classic. They sound like hi-hats, you yeah, know. Exactly. Um, that's That's kind of the dictionary version of hi-hats, you know. So how did and, you get into 15s? Uh, it was definitely by chance. So I signed with, actually, I would say going back to my Peisty days, towards the end of my Peisty days, I was playing 14-inch Dark Energy hats um, and just loved those. And then, um, and then when I made the move to Minol, 
let's see. That was before Benny had his signature hat. So I was playing. I was playing the hats that Benny was playing, which was the 14 inch extra dry hi hats. Right. Um, and I played those for three and a half years straight. And then what happened was Meinl flew me over to Germany to do a bunch of videos for their website. You know, so hey, we've got these new symbols. You know, five new sets. We've got the new Vintage Pure, and we've got the duels, and we need you to film the demos for our website. Okay, cool. So I filmed the dual series, and it had the 15-inch hi-hats on them on the on the kit, and that was my first time playing them. And I'd seen that JP was playing them, and I think Annika was playing them at the time. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I, and I, so I asked my rep. I said, and I, as soon as the these two filming days in the studio were done, we were going to go on a like a five- or six-date uh, German tour. Uh, so I asked my rep Norbert and I said, um, can we use these hi hats on this tour just so I can check them out? And he's like, but of course you can, you can keep them if you like. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> let's take these. And so we took them out on the road and I just, I became addicted to them and I absolutely love them. Um, so yeah, so 15s have just been kind of the jam and, and it's funny the way you said it about where it positions your hi cause my hi hats, the edge of my hi-hats always come to the exact edge of my snare drum. So there's no overlap and there's no gap, no matter what. Oh, wow. So if I was playing 13s, I would actually sacrifice my foot position to get that hi-hat where I want it for my hands. And if I was yeah. playing 17s, I would have to then move the hi-hat stand further away to get the hi-hat to the edge. Well, the 15s moved my hi-hat stand one inch further away from my bass drum pedal and it was like heaven for my feet and for the sound I wanted. So it was just oh, a perfect match. So yeah, so I've been playing those. And then, but what's funny, you know, is like when we have students come in for camp, they'll be playing my 15s and they'll want to record a song. I'll say, okay, what are you recording? They'll say, oh, like an old Michael Jackson thing. And I'll put on some 13 inch like Soundcaster Fusions or 13 inch M series, something just kind of thick and 13. Yeah. And it's like, hey, these sound fantastic for this, you know, whether it's Michael Jackson or Justin Timberlake, it, they just have more of a, a processed sound, I guess. Yeah. And, and they and sound they, perfect. They also they don't have all that low end that gets in the way. I was going to mention that, that like, yeah, 16s are my favorite, but when it comes to like, I need to just be able to cover everything, they're not going to work. Right. They can get in the sure. way. I would I mean, I think everyone should have a good set of 14 inch medium weight, new beat style hi hats. Cause that's going to work for everything. And then you Absolutely. can start branching. I mean, yeah, you want to have your own sound, but sometimes you need to, like, sometimes you need to be transparent and just totally, totally. And and like you said, I mean, you're you're a perfect example of like the hired drummer thing, where it's like, you know, your sound is supposed to be whatever the artist wants the sound to be, you right. know. Um, and you know, you can bring your own thing to it somewhat, but you can't be playing like an R and B gig that needs a very sampled sound and dropping 17s on it, you know, because yeah. it's just, it's too out there. Yeah, no clarity. Um, exactly. Yeah. You so. know, and I, I found that uh, I was trying to get a Will Calhoun hi-hat sound a couple weeks back, and he uh-huh. actually used two bottoms from a set of new beats. Oh, really? And it surprisingly sounded pretty badass. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to keep that in my bag of tricks, like for heavy rock gigs. Wow. I've always the, loved and, his hi-hat sound, and I didn't realize that he was using like the heaviest possible pair of 14s he could find, which are two wow. bottoms. Yeah, man, that's going to give you some tennis elbow laying into that thing. <laughs> that's cool. Is that for your, uh, your video series that you've been doing on your drummers of influence? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been cool. trying to match these guys' sounds as, as closely as possible, and the only way to get his hi-hat sound is, is with two, two bottoms. Pretty interesting. Awesome. By the way, the the soul tones that you mentioned, just for people that are looking for a cheaper option, are those still being made? Yeah, yeah. The okay. uh, vintage old school is what they're called. You, you'll you'll know what they are because they look like they've been like <laughs> in the bottom of a riverbed for a couple of years. Nice, <laughs> they look like nice. A, a copper penny that's been around the world a few hundred times. They are great. <laughs> I took them on the road and they were they were perfect. I actually inspired a couple other guys to get some sixteens. Nice. Do you know what Do you know what level of bronze they are? They're they B twenty, B twenty. Oh, so they're nice symbols. Yeah, they sound they sound cool. like a like a K or something like that. But they're not they're cool. not so thin that they get papery. Like I could still the problem when you use two crashes. Like I used to just use two sixteen uh, inch thin crashes. The problem with that is they just they are, they're hollow. Yeah, they sound great when you record them, but you're not going to get any foot sound, and you're and they're just not you're not going to be able to get real clarity. These have enough. Clarity. So they really just sound like hi hats. I don't think people even realize they were sixteens until they looked at them. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that two crashes. People definitely need to understand that 
two crashes are not hi-hats. You can use them as hi-hats, but hi-hats are made differently. They're a different weight. They're a different thickness. And so just grabbing two crashes, even if they'll work, they're not not meant to be hi-hats. So there is a difference between a 16-inch set of hi-hats that was made by a company to be hi-hats and then two 16-inch crashes. Um, Not to mention two 16-inch hi-hats are meant to fit together, where two 16-inch crashes are not meant to. They, they might not be shaped and bowed properly to to give you that foot chunk and kind of bowed f- a flatter towards the edge. They might be a little too round at the edge, and you just never get that real good chick sound that you're looking for. So Yeah, and if you're going to try that, I would say make sure you definitely use a heavier crash for the bottom. Yeah. Just at least one exactly. level, one level heavier. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure the reason, the, the way we even got 16-inch hats and 17-inch hats is people putting their crash symbols together. Yeah. And then the symbol company saying, you know, we can make you hi-hats like that if you wanted to. Right. All right, this is a demo of 13-inch new beat hi-hats, 14-inch new beat hi-hats, and 15-inch new beat hi-hats. So they're all the same basic type of medium weight hi-hat symbol, um, but just you're going to hear the difference in the sizes. So listen to the clarity, the crispness, the chiminess, maybe the warmth, um, and also listen to how it kind of affects the entire drum sound. All right, here's the 13s. Here are the 14-inch new beats. Here are the 15-inch new beats. Lastly, here are my 16-inch Soul-Tone Vintage Old School Hi-Hats. Awesome, man. Well, let's get into our cover artist. So the cover artist for the January issue is a newcomer to the scene, <laughs> Mr. N- uh, Mr. Neil. And so how do you say it? Pert or Pert? Yeah, there's another one. It, it is Peart. Peart? I wasn't even in that. It's, not, I was, uh, it's, it's the pert, third option. It's not Pert. It's, it's Peart, like an ear. Peart. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> Dude, I mean, just just give me a nice Mike Dawson. You know, give me just something where I can't screw it up. Although I, I will admit... Because you in in the modern drummer everything is Michael Dawson. When we first started talking on the phone, like I never knew. Like when I would call modern drummer, I would, you know, and uh, is it Lashonda? Is yeah. that your receptionist? Yeah, yeah. You know, she'd go Lashonda speaking, and I would go, "Is Michael Dawson available?" <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> and then and then you would answer the phone you go hey this is mike this is like you know we were just starting to talk and i was yeah. like ah, what the hell do i call him and i my name's mike i should know this stuff but yeah i mean that, so that michael's a, i don't like the way the word michael sounds there's like a weird throat <laughs> thing in there call yeah and it comes michael. out of my mom's mouth yeah you know exactly. what i mean so when I mean, I'm in trouble. The reason that it's in the magazine full name because I'm respecting my mother who named me Michael. There you go. But I like it. Everybody. All right. Well, Michael. Neil Peart. Peart. Is that right? Peart? Peart. Yes. Ear <laughs> with a right. P. All right. Neil Peart. Done. <laughs> Done. Let's talk about him. When did when did he kind of make his way into your world just as like a, a young drummer? Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty interesting. I mean, I I kind of discovered him through MTV when I was like nine or ten. It was when, really uh, when their album Presto came out. I had no idea that they were this legendary prog rock band or that they had all these legions of following. I just heard Show Don't Tell on MTV, and it was badass. The drumming was super strong. I mean, he comes in with a rim shot in the beginning that, that just was amazing. So that record, and I went through a very brief rush phase, which involved that record, the follow-up two records, I think, and then I kind of went back and checked out moving pictures and, and a couple other things, but never really got like I never became a, a, a devotee of, of Neil. Right. But it had a certain I mean that I was 10 and, and the guy was playing a lot of drums. So I was setting up as whatever I could find, grabbing extra drums and taping cymbal arms together and doing whatever yeah, I could. Buddy. And I would try to play along to that record. So he, you know, just without anyone's outside influence, he impacted me just because he was badass. Uh, you know, but that's that's where it kind of stopped after I think it was Counterparts was the last record that I really was into. That was the first C D I ever bought, actually. Really? Yeah. Oh man, that's cool. So what about you? Uh for me it was jazz band in uh freshman year of high school. So it was pretty late. I was thirteen years old. Um and uh yeah, we had to learn this song uh, called Tom Sawyer by the band Rush. For your jazz and band? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's California, man. <laughs> it, pretty much our teacher finally gave in. He's like, okay, you guys are horrible at swing. We are going to rock the hell out of the Golden Empire Jazz Festival. It's like, sweet. Oh, so, uh, yeah, so we had to learn Tom Sawyer. And I didn't, you know, I was just getting into... I guess what Rush had created, which was bands like Primus and stuff like that. So I was just getting into that world. And when we were playing this, the the first I was a freshman and the first chair drummer said, uh, do you not know who Rush is? And I was like, I do not. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I've been very busy trying to become the best BMX racer on the planet. I, <laughs> I do not know who Rush is. And he was like, oh, my God, you got to check it out. And so, yeah, so I, I started getting into it. And then I had to learn Tom Sawyer note for note because we were playing it in jazz band. And I had the sheet music for it. Wow. And, yeah, so that was my first experience. And it was this new respect for somebody that could actually write drum parts. You know, I'd always played grooves and fills and grooves and fills. Well, now this hi-hat opens on the E of two on this bar, but not on the next bar and, you know, and not on the next progression. And now we're going to play the bridge in seven, eight. Well, what the heck seven, eight, you know? Yeah. And I had to learn, I mean, I, so learning Tom Sawyer was, I mean, God, there was like 40 drum lessons inside that one song. So that was my introduction to rush. And then, you know, then I went back and I remember the first time hearing YYZ. I'm like, I don't I cannot play this pattern on my lap with my hand. I can't memorize it fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so things like that. I mean, it really opened me up to what was possible on the drum set. And I think Neil Peart was kind of my gateway into the Weckles and the Dennis Chambers, you know, and the Vinnies of the world. Because he was like that first drummer where I, I couldn't just play beats and fills. So I, I'm like you. It kind of kind of capped out for me in high school. I never became a Neil freak. I never became like a Rush um, fan, but definitely the respect was there. And I also think it's it's hilarious when people try to compare, you know, say bad things about Neil and they're trying to compare him to current day drummers. And it's like, but you don't understand those current day drummers wouldn't be able to play half the stuff they're playing if Neil didn't show it to them. So right. allow him to exist in his category, you know, um, I'm sure there's people on the jazz scene right now doing some pretty insane stuff that would be tough for Tony Williams, but they couldn't do it in the first place if Tony didn't open the doors for them. Yeah. So, you know, I think Neil was Neil is like one of those gateway guys because just like Travis Barker, just like uh, you know, Carter Beaufort, 
how often do you get to hear amazing drumming on the radio? Well, Rush was an example of that. You yeah. turn on the radio and the hit single that's a hit for the entire world happens to have some fantastic drumming in it. So it's just, I mean, there's there's no wonder why his sticks are still the best-selling signature sticks in the world. Right. And, yeah. you know, people line up in droves at NAMM to see, to take a picture of his drum set when he's not even there. Yeah. That's, I mean, go put my drum set at NAMM and see how many people line up. <laughs> It'd be me and you just giving people free issues of modern drummer to take a picture next to it yeah i mean it's, so it's you know it's pretty incredible it's definitely a phenomenon i don't quite understand it i just don't right. i mean i've never been like a you know i don't really have idols i don't really obsess over anything so i always kind of question that kind of stuff but he has something some kind of magical power and people absolutely love totally. him i have nothing but totally. respect for him as well and there's some great uh, uh drums only mixes you can find on youtube of his parts that if you need a reason to like, because a lot of people just can't stand Getty Lee's voice, so they just sure. they hate Rush. I mean, if you look, if you just listen to his drum parts isolated, I mean, it's it's fantastic and it's not robotic. All the things that people criticize him for, it's just not true. Right? He's not robotic. I mean, yeah, he might play the song exactly the same way every night, but the way he plays it is pretty pretty natural and pretty raw. And there's a, there's a strong Keith Moon influence there. So if you right. start digging back into you know how he even became who he is, he's like a he's like an organized version of Keith Moon, which is pretty yeah. badass. And he said something too in the article, um, and it's something that you guys featured kind of in the beginning of the magazine that I thought was really cool. Where it sa- he says there are things in my solo that have been there since I was sixteen, things that always thrilled me and still do. And one thing that I I take from that is. Benny Greb kind of gave me that speech when I was getting ready for PASIC 2013 or whenever I played PASIC. And I was really nervous about my solo and I asked him for some advice. And he said, don't feel bad about playing things that you've played before. Play things that you like. Don't worry if people have heard him before. Maybe they want to hear it again. But, you know, he's like, I always play this kind of double bass samba thing at the end of my solos. But I don't play it because I think they'll like it. I play it because I like it. And so that was kind of his advice to me. It was like, pretty much play the hits. Don't mm-hmm. don't try to, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every night. And I love that Neil said, dude, I've, I'm still playing things that were in my solo when I was 16 because I dig them. Yeah. That's it. Move on. And I, I love that. I think that's a, a great thing. It's really cool. And it, and it just allow it takes some of the pressure off of us to say, okay, you don't, you don't have to play a new fill every single time you play a fill. Just play things that you enjoy, play things that make you happy. And, and the more you play them, the better you're going to be at them. You know, yeah, so you don't have to reinvent yourself every five years. I mean, some no. some people do, some people don't. So just find your exactly. own, your own thing. Well, and and people like you for a certain reason. So why always take all of that reason out of your drumming every couple years? You know, yeah. it's okay to leave some of that stuff. If I'm going to see Benny Greb play tonight, I'm hoping that at some point I'll hear this and I'll be like oh here it goes here comes the Benny you know and I want to hear him go blah blah Benny grab you know like he has those little kind of eighth note triplet crescendo things and big flam things and it's like dude that's that's you know what um some of my friends and I we always called it the Ness like whatever the Mikeness is whatever the Benny-ness is like don't lose all of it you know and don't and don't feel bad about it it's it's your Ness and it's okay I think the only drummer who was able to effectively reinvent himself every few years was Tony Williams if you go back and listen to him when he was 17 versus when he was even just 21 or 22 and then when he got into the fusion thing and then there was a second phase of fusion where he abandoned all of his jazz vocabulary basically I think he I think I'm paraphrasing but the quote was uh, when he got into that like believe it era stuff, he wanted to play everything that he'd never played. So he got rid of everything he'd already played and just focused on the stuff he'd never done before, which is where all that flammy stuff came into play. Um, so there's that era, and then you've got the the later era where he was back to the big kit and playing a little bit more simply. So I think he's the only one I can think of. Who's and I mean, it's been so confusing for guys like me when people are like, "Oh man, you got to check out Tony," and it's like. Okay, so I go grab a Tony album. Is this the one you're talking about? You know, and oh, you you party foul son of a gun! Come on, oh, dog. <laughs> that was awesome. Anyway, what were you saying? Yeah, Tony. Yeah, was that Tony from heaven being like you talking crap? Um, but no, I mean, I remember when somebody said you got to check out Tony because a lot of the stuff you're doing is Tony influenced. And I, you know, whatever random album I got, it was like no, I, I disagree with you. I don't hear anything. 
yeah. that is related to my playing. And it's like, oh, well, you got the wrong album because he sounded much different, you know. And I think actually, what's funny is Miles Davis did a very similar thing. Exactly. You know? oh, yeah, he's paralleling and, that. So yeah, so I, I'm sure there was a huge influence. And, there. Yeah, and there's there's if you think about like each era, you got the early Tony stuff. That's where the Mark Julianas and all the, the modern jazz guys are still. Bill Stewart's are still grabbing from that 70s fusion stuff. That's 100 percent Steve Smith and Vinnie Cayuta and Greg Bissonette. It's like they're learning from two totally different sources. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Fantastic. But you know, I think maybe I would like to know if there's any other drummers that people think like they were able to reinvent themselves successfully, not just with the bands that they're in, but their drumming completely reinvented. Because I can't. Think yeah. Of no. I mean. Else. No. I mean that's that's the whole kind of quest for most people is to build up something that where if you heard me play on an album, you would be able to say I know you know no matter what the album is, I know who that is you know and. I wouldn't have to guess, is this fusion record Dave Weckl or Vinnie Caliuta? I would be able to tell you, you know, right, right away. Right. Um, and so, you know, most people wouldn't have the confidence in themselves to kind of lose what has caused them to gain fans in the first place and to ditch it. So, well, if you guys want to know more about Mr. Neil Peart, please check out the January issue of Modern Drummer. It's out now. Now let's get into the candy, <laughs> the gear review. So I mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, you got to check out a Providence 4x14 VW, and I mean VW as in Volkswagen right. snare drum. I checked them out, and I got to say, it blew me away. Blew me away. Like, I had, I, I had no idea. Dude, they've got things from, like, old shipwrecks. They've yeah. got things yeah. from... a. An F four Phantom Jet Fighter. <laughs> right. When I say things, guys, what I'm talking—you can probably hear the excitement in my voice. I'm talking. The dude is making snare drums out of pieces of an F four Phantom Jet Fighter. Yeah. What? Yep. I got to review it, that drum too a couple years ago. Aluminum. So they've been around for a while. Yeah, it's probably been—I uh, don't know—maybe five years. There's a gosh darn 1944 Rolls Royce Merlin in here. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, and he's where like, are they from? He's up in, in the hills in, in the UK. He was at the London Drum Show. Did you did you not make it out to the exhibit area? I did. Yeah. I, I but it, it's just like Nam. It's pure chaos. Yeah. And I, I can only walk like three steps before I have to talk to somebody, which I love doing. But it, yeah, I, I I don't really get to see the exhibits very well. Yeah. So he's just reclaiming all this like cool wood. I mean, everything has to have a story. That's his whole point. So the drum that we reviewed this month, uh, it was a it was actually a a panel van, a VW panel van that was, I believe it was like a pesticide truck or something. You can see like the old rust on it and everything. Yeah. So he didn't, he didn't refinish it at all. So the drum we got looked like a chunk of a rusty van turned into a snare drum. Uh, and I loved it. I mean, I, the vibe of it alone was just super cool. Just oh, it's steel. so cool. And it sounded great. So it's steel. Steel, steel. Yes. I believe it might be aluminum. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, it says here it's a 1962 VW Type 2 steel. Yeah, there you go. Um, so it, it's a vintage snare drum because it came from a vintage car, right. which is awesome. <laughs> uh, now, is it sensitive? I mean, is, are these well-made snare drums? They are as high-end as anything you'll ever play. Super, really? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's – and yeah, I mean, they're powerful. He, he makes for real drums. They're not, they're not gimmicks. Um uh, this one, it, it sounded a lot bigger than a 4x14. I think he made two of them. So there's a 4x14, and he might have also made like a 6 or an 8x14. We, okay. we got the 4x14. So it's a piccolo size, but I mean, so it didn't do like the super duper deep low sound perfectly. Right. But anywhere in the, the medium and up, was it was awesome. The overtones were clean and pure. You know, it was super sensitive. Everything wow. about yeah. it was great. He's got a so he's got the uh, the four by fourteen which you guys did, and then he's also got it yeah like you said an eight by fourteen that has some split lugs so the four by fourteen has some classic tube lugs on it. Yep. Now are, is the throw off um, OEM or is it yeah. is he using somebody else's stuff? I think for this one, if I remember correctly, it was like a Gibraltar Piccolo style, so it had like the little lever yeah. side lever, but it worked great. I mean, it held it held tuning, it held tension. I mean, it's it's a it's a pro drum and just with extra coolness that you just can't you can't get anywhere else man that's really cool that's i i'm i i'm sure everyone can kind of hear my voice and you can see like i'm really smiling like i <laughs> i really want to check this stuff out i'm really bummed that i had the chance to see their booth and i i just wasn't able to get there um this is cool stuff hopefully he'll be at nam and if not um 
maybe I can get him to send out a snare that I can review um, just yeah. for the Mike's Lessons family and get some people to check it out because I, I love stuff like this that has a story. Some guy just started making really, you know that I'm kind of obsessed with watches now. Some guy just started making really, really high-end watches out of uh, different car wrecks. and uh, oh, yeah. yeah, but I mean like nice $1,500 watches out of a a Ford Shelby that got totaled, you know, and, uh, and and so it's, it's hard to explain, but I just love things with a story. And this is, you know, just for somebody to be like, Oh, that's a really cool snare. And be like, Oh, that's cool. It it fought in world war two. That's just awesome. Yeah. There's some ghosts in this drum for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at that, um, at the, let's see the 1906 hydrogen. Uh, it was from a, a ship that, that sank and it's like that's so awesome you know I, i'm sorry i'm just really it's cool and they, they just look great and i love it's got a nice classic badge on it so it's a good looking drum yeah. uh, looks like it comes with some uh double flanged hoops uh maybe triple flanged yeah sorry. They, they were yeah they're regular stand i'm pretty sure they were okay. standard triple flanged. standard hoops cool well enough geek talk let's listen to the drum It's time for pick of the week, and this week I've got a. Well, let me first say, ask you a question. Yes, sir. Is there a classic drummer that you know you should really, really love and and have a ton of the records, but you just don't have anything, any music that they played on that you really connect with? Elvin Jones. Elvin Jones, good choice. It's it's probably the opposite for you, but I've tried everything I can to fall in love with Elvin. And it's just it, the respect is it's through the roof, but it just hasn't happened. And and I don't want to fake it. Like, I don't want to be that guy that's like, oh, man, I love Elvin. I love Tony. It's like if I don't, then why do I have to lie about it, even though I know that I'm supposed to? Right. Um, so and, and keep in mind, I'm not saying I don't love Elvin's drumming. It's just that I'm not a huge jazz fan. I like songs. I like pop. Yeah. Um, so it just never was like I got to listen. I would say is Elvin on. Um, uh Oh man, my favorite things by John Coltrane. Yep, he is. That's okay. That's my favorite jazz song, like the yep. Coltrane version of it. I just like it. But keep in mind, it's a pop tune. You know yep. what I mean? Like there's a melody that I can sing the whole time, so it's a little more tangible for me. So I would say probably Elvin. What about you? Oh, I would. I mean, you should check out maybe Coltrane plays the blues because it's all okay. It's all blues tunes, and okay. it's not him. It's not Coltrane doing his sheets of sound or Elvin doing his craziness. It's kind of a little bit more straight ahead. Uh, for me, it's Jeff Picaro. Ah, I can't. I mean, he just came up in an era when I just don't like the music. I, I mean, it's either like the late seventies kind of disco pop, or it's that eighties like super smooth light rock stuff. Yeah, buddy. I just can't I'm dig with it. You. I can't dig it. I've tried. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I can't <laughs> dig it. <laughs> I really, really tried, and so I've, I've. I've kind of given up where I would I would go buy a record and be like, man, I bought this record and, and there's one song that doesn't give me a headache on the whole record. Right. The right. drumming is I mean, I can't even give I can't even get a chance to really get into the drumming because the music just I mean, if I hear that Yamaha DX seven keyboard sound, I'm Dude, done. I'm done. Brother, you have no idea how many <laughs> fights I get in with uh Chris Brady over at Aquarian where he's like, How do you not know about this Steely Dance song? And I'm like, Dog I can't handle the music. I'm not denying how fantastic the drumming is and whoever played on it, you know, and Carlos Vega and Steve, get, I get it, but I cannot handle just the beard, like I can't, the, 
freaking laser beams. That's what I call them. It's like there's just laser beams to the whole damn song. I can't. So I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not sure. I'm mean, have to do some cultural research to figure out what was going on in California in like the early '80s. <laughs> I think they were just all so jacked up on cocaine that they needed the music to really kind of mellow them out. <laughs> Uh, just just a quick warning to the kids. Getting jacked on coke wrecks the music. All right, kids, stay uh, off the cocaine. And stay oh away goodness. from the Yamaha DX7, for God's sake. <laughs> so anyway. Moving forward. Long story longer. The reason I brought it up was I found that on, and I'm also, I don't condone streaming music, but I do think Spotify has a great purpose for discovery. I, I did. Pandora and Spotify caused me to buy more music than anything yes, else. Exactly. So I'm going to recommend there's someone put together a Jeff Percaro playlist on Spotify where it's it's like I don't even know how many tracks, a couple hundred tracks that he played on. Jeez. So if you have a Spotify account, just search for Jeff Percaro and you're going to see this playlist and just put it on shuffle. And I found that that because it's not playing like four Toto songs in a row, it's not playing four <laughs> Ball Skag songs in a row. It jumps around, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, he played with David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. He played with Bruce Springsteen. Oh, now there's a wow. Toto song that I I'd recognize. Or he's on all this kind of like, maybe they were hits back in the day, but you'd never heard of them, kind of pop stuff that's really sure. pretty cool. So I just put that on shuffle, and then it's probably every three or four songs. I'm like, oh, there it is. There's what makes him great to me. Like, I finally can hear it. Uh, so that's my pick of the week is to check out the Spotify. And then when you find something that you really like, I do recommend you go check out the whole record and purchase it. But the Jeff Picaro playlist on Spotify has been opening the window for me to finally really get why he is the, one of the greatest session players. And I think I've discovered what made him so great is his he hit the drum exactly the same way every single time, which just records perfectly. I mean, they can set the compressors and everything to a certain spot where, I mean, his, and when he hits a snare drum, it sounds the same. It, it, you know, each dynamic, his soft always sound the same, his mediums always sound the same, his louds always sound the same. So they just everything just has its spot in the mix. And I think, right. and his, I mean, his control and all that stuff is great too. But I think just his sound, he's just had to have been super easy to record. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean that's makes the producer's job much easier, especially back in the day. No Pro Tools, you know, your everything you record is what you're getting. It's real to real tape. You want to, you know causes few uh razor blade slices as possible so i'm sure you know guys like him and jr robinson just made the world much easier well that's awesome i'm I'm gonna definitely check it out for sure what's yours all right well before we get to that let me tell you you brought up um david gilmore and i had a pink floyd incident at the london drum show so (laughs) i played the london drum show and um because I was kind of early in the day, I really didn't have much of a breakfast at all. And then the whole day went and then I played the show and then I had like three interviews. So I went about eight hours without having any food. And at the end, I had an interview with iDrum magazine. So I go in, uh, sit down with Gemma. We do our interview. And on the way out, I noticed they have this huge bowl of chocolate, of Ghirardelli chocolate squares. And I haven't eaten in like eight hours and I'm starting to shake a little bit. So I grabbed like six of them. And I and I unwrapped all of them and put them all in my mouth all at once. So six huge chocolate Ghirardelli chocolate squares. And it's turned into this cement in my mouth. And we walk out the door. And right then we run into Mike Dolbear and Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. And oh, it's wow. this moment in the hallway with photographers where they're going to introduce Mike Johnston to Nick Mason. And I literally can't even make a noise other than a mum mum. I can't do anything. And there, and it's supposed to be this big moment. And I'm I'm recognizing that I'm at least 45 seconds away from being able to say a word because it's so thick in my mouth. I can't do anything about it. And it's chocolate. I can't spit it out into my hand. So I, it was just like the most – so just search on uh, – I'm sure somewhere on Twitter you'll see in Mike Dolver's feed him kind of making fun of my meeting with Nick Mason from Pink Floyd because I never even got to say my name. I couldn't make a noise. It oh, was so embarrassing. Oh, I literally just wanted to go cry. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, and all he said was – he was like – in his great posh British accent, he just said, I'm sure you'll tell your friends about this. And oh, I was like... He said that, Yeah, huh? Yeah. No, I mean, he wasn't being a jerk, but he was just kind of like... He was like enjoying the moment that he knows... I mean, he's so famous, he knows this is supposed to be a big moment for me, and I've just completely ruined it by having chocolate in my mouth. Right. And a lot of chocolate in my mouth. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, he was, he, was, he was a good sport about it. But uh, all right, so my pick of the week is the Planetary Radio Podcast. 
Planetary Radio Podcast is an astronomy podcast uh, hosted by a fantastic host named Matt Kaplan. And the Planetary um, Planetary Society is headed up by Mr. Bill Nye, the science guy, who is a fantastic advocate uh, for going to Congress and trying to get us more money for our space programs and informing Congress on why we need more money for space exploration and letting them know how little we have to spend on trying to explore our own solar system and uh, the other solar systems in this universe. So uh, Planetary Society has the Planetary Radio podcast and Matt Kaplan interviews different people that keep us up to date on what missions are coming up. What What is the James Webb Space Telescope going to be doing? How long does the Hubble Space Telescope have left? And then he'll interview somebody that's running um, a planetarium somewhere in the world. And it's just a fantastic podcast that keeps you in the loop on what we're trying to do um, with planetary exploration. And I'm a huge astrophysics nerd and so it's just one of my favorite podcasts and it's got a lot of different segments and it keeps it moving and the 45 minutes go by in in uh, the blink of an eye and one of the things that i love about great astronomy or astrophysics podcasts is when you're done listening to it it really simplifies the drum set rights and lefts are very easy compared to the problems that these people are trying to solve uh to find out how our universe came to be and exploring what is currently there so planetary radio podcast check it out it is awesome all right buddy so i will talk to you next week yep until then get some practice in and i can't wait to hear this podcast when it comes out so i can listen to that vw snare drum (laughs) there you go all right well everyone have a great day as always go and give us a little four or five star rating and a nice review it helps us do what we do so that we can just keep doing it and until next week mr dawson i will see you soon see you then